Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme, recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jessica Holmes. Today, we root for the underdog in everyday life with Redemption, Stories of the Comeback, our January 2012 show. First up, featured storyteller Aaron Anchustegi witnesses a breakdown, then a breakthrough after a harrowing breaking free. When trying to get this story out of memory and into a coherent form, I was looking at over the internet and came across this Latin phrase, de profundis ad lucem, which means out of the depth and into the light. And I'll come back to that at the end of this story. Uh, this story took place several, many years ago. Lila and I had been friends and we lived in a um, ratty apartment building. Uh, just a few doors from each other, and I babysat her son, Brian, when he was little. And around the age of 11, years went by, of course, we were still friends, uh, we decided after dinner to go to a mall. I needed some jeans, and her husband was working late. At, he taught a class. Uh, and so we took Brian to the mall with us, and... Um, Brian, when we arrived at the mall, uh, just wanted to go look at sports equipment and um, music. And Lila and I decided to go look at the clearance racks at Penny's. So she told Brian, well, meet us in the lobby on this bench in about 20 minutes. And we went off to the clearance racks, and Brian went off to look at sports equipment and music. And when we were looking at the um, clearance racks, of course, we talked like schoolgirls. We were close friends. We were, you know, what was on sale, jeans. I was looking for jeans. And uh, time went by. 20 minutes went by rather quickly. When we went back to the uh, mall lobby, uh, Lila and I were approaching the bench where Brian was, and he was standing there white, trembling as he was talking to two security guards. And uh, when he saw Lila, he said, well, where were you? Uh, I was looking for you. I called your name, but you weren't around. And uh, she said, well, what, what happened? And she, of course, she was alarmed seeing the security guards. Brian was just absolutely afraid. And he said that someone tried to abduct me. Uh, and Lila said, I think she was stunned because she said, are you sure that you just didn't bump into someone? <laughs> and I, I, I know that she must have been stunned because it was such a strange question. And uh, she's, he said, no, this man grabbed me from behind by the arm and uh, he tried to drag me. And so then he told the story to Lila of this man who dragged the boy uh, dragged him to these double doors of the mall where there was a car outside the mall parked in the wrong direction with the uh, front door open. And uh, Brian, uh, when he got to the double doors with this man, kicked him in the kneecap and managed to escape. And that's when the security guards noticed. Of course, it wasn't earlier. Um, and... Uh, 
After that, Brian gave a description of the man to the police. And this man was a young man in his 20s with stonewashed jeans and a mustache. But that night when we drove home from the mall, Brian, I, I remember looking in the back seat of the car. Isla was still in a state of shock and he was still white as a sheet and he kept saying, what would have happened if I hadn't got free, if I hadn't kicked him and got loose, I'd be dead now. And I know that that was a particular idea with, that stayed with him. What would have happened if I hadn't gotten loose? Now, when I told this story to my son, who is about this tall, uh, my son regularly um, keeps zombies and dragons out of our backyard. He said that um, he would have kicked the man, he would have become a ninja assassin. He kicked the man in the nuts. But by the time afterwards, Brian was not a ninja assassin, and he was retreating into a dark place. In the months after the attempted abduction, Brian came down with a rash of illnesses, sinus infections, headaches, stomach problems. Lila and Daryl, uh, of course, they didn't want to talk about the abduction, thinking that would make it worse. But they had, or rather permitted, um, Brian to sleep in their room with them. Brian was afraid that the man might come back. The police who got the description, they never did catch the perpetrator. And so this actually increased the fears in Brian, who, when he was outside, feared that the man might return. Brian would not go to the bus stop to wait for the bus. So uh, Daryl would take him to school and he continued to sleep in the bedroom of his parents. Over time, the um, illnesses, of course, continued, and at one, ultimately, his legs buckled from underneath him. He couldn't walk. And that seemed to be the, 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 the point where the family was at a crisis. They took Brian to the um, emergent, not the emergency room, to the doctor. The doctor said he's fine. They did neurological tests on him. He's normal. He's a healthy boy. So why was it that he needed all of this help? Then the doctor asked this question to Lila. She, he said, was there something traumatic that happened? Is there something that happened in the last several months, anything, a death in the family that might have influenced this? And that's when she said, she told me, that the walls came crashing down upon her. She remembered the attempted abduction and she told the doctor this and he said, absolutely, you need to see a psychologist, someone who has training in post-traumatic stress syndrome, victimization, and that's what the family did. By this time, Brian was still not walking and his father, Daryl, had rented a van uh, with a chairlift to take him back and forth from school and to the doctor and so forth. At the psychologist, Brian uh, was asked questions by the psychologist, of course, and the psychologist asked him 
various questions, and after about the second um, meeting, the floodgates open for Brian. He starts talking about the abduction. But you have to remember that all this time, Lila and Daryl did not want to talk about the abduction because they thought it would make it worse for him. They thought it would bring back the reality of that moment. They tried to put it behind them. The psychologist then told after, the, after Brian said that he searched every face for that abductor who had not been caught by the police. They never did get this man with the mustache and the stonewashed jeans. So he was afraid that the man might return. That he searched every face for that, that man and it, uh, it seemed to always be a fear in front of him that the man might return. The psychologist told Lila and Daryl that even well-meaning parents can do exactly what they shouldn't do. They were reinforcing Brian's fears. In letting Brian sleep in the bedroom with them, they reinforced the fear that the world was not safe for him. In taking him to school, they reinforced the idea that he was not safe to go to school by himself. And that exacerbated the problem. And the psychologist told him that a boy needs, after something like this happens, someone has to feel grief and express grief. And I remember asking Lila, what, grief? Why does someone feel grief as a result of this? And she said that people feel grief when some of the givens in society are taken from us. Security and happiness, these are, what, these are the givens, and when, when this is taken away from us, it causes confusion, frustration, and anger. And that's what Brian needed to express. And so when Brian finally did express this and talked about his emotions with the psychologist, over time, his, the strength in his legs came back. And I don't remember how much time it was before he was playing basketball with his friends again, but I remember that day when he was playing basketball. And one thing that reminded me is that Brian's demons, when brought into the light, couldn't survive. And so this notion of de, de profundis ad lucem, which means out of the depths and into the light, is really what redemption is about, isn't it? Thanks, Aaron. Now, our Story Slam winner, Jennifer Ellsworth, redeems a scapegoat. My story is about a goat. And this is the redemption of the goat from the city bus. True story. 2008, about 10 days before Christmas, I was invited to a Christmas tea, a nice formal ladies Christmas tea in the Highlands. I really didn't know anybody there, but I was really excited to go. And so I got all dressed up, and I had a cashmere jacket on, and I had fancy boots that were really tall and long black pants. And I was thinking, oh, yay, I'm leaving work early. I'm out of health-wise. Oh, goody, I get to go to Christmas tea. And so I'm driving up 15th Street up, up to the, my party, and I look to the left, 
And right at Hill Road, there's a little bus stop and a little open area. Does anybody, has, has anybody ever noticed that little bus stop there? Oh, yes. And it had been snowing days and days and days, and it had snowed and melted and snowed and melted, so it was really crunchy snow. And it was just there, and there was the bus. And the bus was stopped there for a long period of time as I'm driving up, and I'm thinking, why are they still stopped there? And I see this white goat walking across the snow and up the stairs in the bus. <laughs> All by itself. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. And I pull over, because who doesn't love animals? Do we all love animals? I mean, really, do we, would we not stop for a dog or a cat? Getting on the city bus? And so I stop the car and I run across, and I'm like, okay. And I walk into the bus, and this man, this old bus driver, is staring at this goat in the middle of the aisle. And there's about four people afraid of the goat. <laughs> and it was so perfect. It had been groomed. It had a beautiful collar on it. And I don't really know anything about goats. But I was like, oh, is this anybody's goat? And nobody said, oh, no, no. And I'm like, oh. Okay, and I take the goat and I walk down the stairs with the goat. And the bus driver's like, Thank you. <laughs> Shuts the door and drives off. Now, there was this big, it seemed like a really big open field, and I'm like, I don't know what to do with this goat now. So I'm, I'm thinking, Well, maybe the goat knows where it lives. And so I thought, Well, maybe it'll walk me over there. And so I'm thinking, I'm going to be late for my Christmas tea. Anyway, and so there was this old minivan kind of parked at the stop sign watching this whole thing. And this lady was very perclempt. She had, I could see her wrinkles through the door and the window. And she had this, oh my God, you know, what's going on here? And so I thought, okay, I'm going to walk across and maybe the goat will show me. So we start going. And he's going. I'm thinking, this is easy. This is great. And, And he was about very tiny, not real big, but round. And about halfway through this place, the goat stopped in this snow and ice, and they have hooves. And it goes, and it wouldn't move. I'm like, what am I going to do now? I can't make it move. And so I thought, well, I've got a Christmas tea to go to. I don't have all day. So I pick the goat up. Seriously, on 50th Street, I'm all dressed up in boots. And I start walking like this with the goat, all the arms. <laughs> it's like a far side cartoon, right? And his little legs are like totally out. And I'm thinking, doesn't anybody notice that I'm carrying a goat? <laughs> I need some help over here. And this lady, this older lady, was still watching the whole thing. And I'm like thinking, okay, I'm really not tripping. Okay, here we go. I'm like, this is really heavy because their little heads are so tiny and they're, they're not very weighted very evenly, right? And it was all stiff. So I put the goat back down and we start going again. And I'm thinking, oh great, it's going towards the door. And there's like three dogs over here and I'm thinking, I hope these dogs aren't going to attack us because they're kind of packing it out. I'm like, oh, please, God, oh, God, please don't hurt us. And so we walk up, and I, I'm thinking, oh, the goat knows this house. Knock on the door, nobody home. I'm like, okay, now what? He starts taking me down the stairs again. We start going this way, and then we go this way, and then we end up, he starts beelining it all the way into this little picket fenced area. The gate was open. 
And since there was snow, I could see the little hoof marks. I think that's what they were in there. And he walked right up to the cat and sniffed the cat, and the cat didn't move. So I'm figuring, this must be where it lives. So I knock on the door, close the gate behind me. Nobody home, and I'm thinking, oh, great. What am I going to do? I just got to leave the goat here. At least it's fenced. And so I turn around and I start walking out. And this lady is sitting there the whole time. And she, like, backs up and goes, is that your goat? And I'm like, uh, no. I'm calling the Humane Society. I'm like, you're helping me now? <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, I am so made for my Christmas tea. So I leave and I go on up to this house. And I walk in and I think I have a little bit of Angora hair on me. And I'm like, thinking, would anybody really just believe what happened? Because <laughs> I don't think I would believe it. And so anyway, that's my story of redemption for that little goat. And it really was home. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by fearless leaders, Jessica Holmes, that's me, and Anna Dimitriadis, as well as story seeker, Zach Borman, and studio instructors Elizabeth McKetta and Kate Riley. Theme song, music, and podcast production are by the He Shall Be Redeemed Dan Costello. Hear more at hearcostello.com. Our partners include Boise State Public Radio, the Boise State Story Initiative, Neighborhood All-Stars, The Rose Room, Bricolage, and Red Feather. A big thanks goes out to our story think tank, volunteer coordinator Kylie Krill, and fabulous volunteers. Join us on the podcast next week for a second shot at redemption. Learn more at storystorynight.com.